check out my new book, Coping Courageously, a heart-centered guide for navigating a loved one's illness without losing yourself. It's appropriate for you as a clinician, for your patients, and for anyone you know who has a seriously ill loved one or an aging parent. Check it out and tell a friend. Hello, and welcome to the Integrative Palliative Podcast. I'm Dr. Delia Caramonti, an integrative palliative medicine physician. If you want to improve the well-being of families facing serious illness, that's your patients, but also your own family, you are in the right place. We can heal people's lives even when we can't cure their disease. So let's get started. Welcome to the Integrative Palliative Podcast. I am Dr. Delia Caramonti, and today we're going to be answering questions about food and feeding in seriously ill and palliative populations. I have gotten tons of different kinds of questions around feeding and eating and appetite, so we're going to talk about those today. So probably my favorite question that I got around feeding had to do with a patient who was in his 70s. He is, he had had a major jaw surgery and was not able to eat anymore. He was very ill and was almost bedbound, but previously he had had coffee every morning and he'd had a whiskey every evening. And he was alert and he was oriented. He had some difficulty communicating, but he was alert and his wife could understand him. He was requesting coffee in his G-tube in the morning and a whiskey in his G-tube in the evening. And so we had a very interesting conversation about whether that was okay or not. The initial feeling of the spouse was that that would not be an okay thing to do, to put coffee in his G-tube. That seemed crazy. We had what I think was an important conversation around quality of life and his goals and the severity of his illness and what was important to him. And he had had coffee every morning for about 55 years until now. And so she ended up giving him coffee in his G-tube as he requested. Okay, so what other kinds of issues come up? What questions do patients and families have around food? One of them that is pretty common in patients who have chemotherapy is a change in eating ability, taste. Sometimes people call it appetite, but it's not necessarily appetite after chemo. So I'm not talking about what happens during chemo. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm talking about after chemo, chemo's done, and now food just doesn't seem right. And people talk about that in different ways. So they might say, my appetite's low, or I'm not eating much. But even if they say appetite, make sure you ask about, what do you mean exactly? Because sometimes after chemo, you can get what I think is probably a neuropathy of the tongue and the mouth. And so sometimes people say that the taste is wrong. Everything tastes like socks or everything tastes like garbage. Or sometimes sweet things are okay, but salty things are terrible or the opposite. So some tastes may be normal and some tastes may just be awful. But they also talk about the texture being wrong. So food just sort of feels wrong in the mouth, kind of like when you go to the dentist and they numb you up and then your tongue feels so big. It's not really bigger, right? It just feels bigger. Texture can be, can just feel wrong in the mouth. Sometimes there are issues, particularly in people who have had radiation around saliva. And so dry things like crackers, et cetera, can be really hard to manage. But then also sometimes people have a thing about temperature. And so things may feel uncomfortable if they're very warm or if they're very cold. It's different for everybody. Sometimes these, we'll call them taste, but it's not just taste, but sometimes these taste or food issues go away over time. Sometimes they don't go away and they're permanent. So it's important to, to really counsel people around this. And the kind of counseling that you can do is 
telling them about these issues of think about the textures that work and don't work. Think about the tastes like sweet, salty, umami, etc. that work, don't work. And think about the temperatures that work and don't work for you. So when people start to think about it, they may come back and say, okay, things have to be room temperature. There can't be any chunks. It has to be smooth and they have to be salty. Or they may say, the complete opposite of that. But once people figure out which textures, tastes, and temperatures they can tolerate, then they can start to make a a list of foods that they can eat and they can start to increase their nutrition again. So I think that is a really, really important counseling to do for people who have any kind of eating issue post-chemo. So that's one. Number two, of course, many people have issues with nausea and therefore eating when they're getting chemo. I think one of the most important things that you would think would be obvious, but is not obvious, is to take the nausea medicines that they are almost certainly given by their oncologist to take them prophylactically. Sometimes people kind of tough out nausea and they're like, no, it's okay. I can do it. You know, I have these medicines if I really need it. But what they find is that they're not eating because they're nauseous. So it's perfectly fine and probably even more than fine to take them prophylactically if they're, if the patient is having trouble eating, just take them in the morning or twice a day as they're prescribed so that First of all, they can feel better and be more active and, you know, move around and live their life, but also so that they can eat. Now, the other thing that you really want to think about in the household, if you have somebody who's nauseous from chemo is smells. So, you know, the don't cook fish is kind of obvious, but there are a lot of other things that have strong smells and different people may be sensitive to different smells. So it's important to ask the person, are there smells that bother you? And if so, please communicate that to the people in your house so that they can be thoughtful about that and and not be cooking foods that make the person feel worse. In terms of what can they eat, what helps, the classic is crackers and ginger ale, but that's not true for everybody. The thing that works is the thing that works for that person. So have a conversation with them about what kinds of foods are working. And it sometimes is a similar sort of thing, like what tastes work better, what temperatures work better, what textures work better. Often things that have chunks in them are harder for people to manage. So like a minestrone soup that's got a whole bunch of junk in it, that might actually not be as good as a broth. And you can get the same nutrition, like you could take the minestrone soup and just put it in a blender so that it doesn't have any chunks, it's smooth. You get the exact same nutrition, but the person can tolerate it. And then the other thing to think about is small plates. Sometimes if someone's feeling nauseous and you put a whole huge plate in front of them, they just can't cope with that and then they don't want anything. So it's much better to give them tiny amounts to start with and then if they want more, they can always go back and get more. So another thing that comes up often is, what about my elderly loved one who's having swallowing issues? What do we do about that? It depends very much what the stages of the person's illness, why it is that they can't swallow, and what their or the family's goals are. So if someone has a stroke and their swallow is impaired, but their cognition is fine and they're otherwise reasonably well, that person, of course, if they swallow, is at risk of an aspiration pneumonia. And other than the swallow issues, if they're generally living a reasonable quality of life and are doing okay, in that case, a feeding tube may be appropriate. But that is not true if somebody is having swallow issues from end-stage dementia, meaning the dementia itself is the reason that the person can't swallow. In that case, feeding tubes are generally not indicated. They don't prolong life. They can decrease quality of life because if someone has severe dementia such that they have progressed so far that their swallow doesn't work, they're probably going to try to pull the tube out. That sometimes ends up meaning they have to be restrained. All of that decreases quality of life. 
and it actually doesn't significantly decrease the risk of aspiration pneumonia. If a person is getting closer to the end of their life from a progressive dementia, feeding tube is not a good idea. And so sometimes people get in the circumstance where the speech and language pathologist might say, we did a swallow study, they flunked, make them NPO. And then the hospitalist might say, okay, they're NPO, they have to have a feeding tube. But you have to take about three steps back and say, okay, wait a minute, what's the big picture here? The big picture here is a person with advanced dementia who is unable to safely swallow. Feeding tube is not going to improve their longevity or their quality of life. We can't deny them all food or water and not give them a feeding tube. So in that case, pleasure feeds is perfectly fine. The person is coming to the end of their natural life. We can't fix that. And allowing them to eat little bits that they want even though we understand that there is a risk of aspiration pneumonia, a risk that is from their decline that we can't fix, it's perfectly fine for them to have pleasure feeds. If they're able to follow instructions, of course, speech and language pathology can help to give them advice about ways to swallow them in a safer way. But the most important thing I want you to know is that if somebody has swallow issues from end-stage dementia and they flunk their swallow study and someone tries to say that they should be NPO and get a feeding tube, please don't do that. Please, please, please don't do that. Please take a step back and look at the big picture and allow the person to have the foods that they like. And if they just want ice cream and pudding, that's fine. It's fine. Okay. Another question that I get sometimes is what will I do because my loved one has been told they're supposed to have boost or some equivalent liquid nutrition and they hate it and they won't drink it. And we fight about it and I yell at them and they won't take their boost. In general, fighting about food is not a good idea. And boost is fine. Some people like it and some people think it's disgusting. The first thing you could do is you could try to make it really cold. Sometimes that helps. You could try a different flavor. Sometimes that helps. But if the person really just doesn't like it, you can make smoothies at home. So you can make smoothies with ice and ice cream or milk and berries and spinach. You could add peanut butter or soy butter. You could add protein powder. And so you can make a very healthy smoothie at home. And often people are much more likely to drink that than to drink Boost. So I recommend that if you yourself are in this circumstance with a loved one, or if you have patients who have uh, loved ones who are struggling in this way, talk about smoothies. And don't just say, oh, you should make them a smoothie because some people don't know what that means. Literally tell them. You can put in ice cream or milk, berries, spinach, peanut butter, soy butter, protein powder, mix it up in a blender and and try to see, can you get them to drink two of those a day, for example. Sometimes I get the question, I'm not sure why they won't eat, but they just won't eat. So we don't know why. It's not chemo. It's not, they didn't flunk their swallow study. We're not sure why they won't eat. A couple things to, just to make sure you don't forget. The first one is depression. Depression in some people can decrease their appetite. In some people, it increases their appetite, but some people it can decrease their appetite. Particularly in the older population, sometimes depression doesn't show up the way you think, like people don't necessarily cry or report being sad, but they may just withdraw and no longer be engaged in regular activities, including eating and their appetite may go down. So always you should run that through your head like, oh, you're not eating, could this be depression? The other things to think about are, could it be reflux? I've had plenty of patients whose appetite problems got better when they got a, a PPI or an H2 blocker. So always think about reflux 
even if the person doesn't come in saying I have reflux, and even if it's not on the chart, do a history. And if something sounds like it might be reflux, give it a try. Also do a mouth exam. Sometimes tooth pain and abscess can show up as just not eating, particularly in a person who may have some communication challenges, maybe a person with dementia, but not even necessarily. Sometimes people just don't realize that's why they're not eating, like their mouth feels better. And so they just don't engage in food at all. So make sure that you assess for mouth ulcers, abscesses, and then tap on every tooth and make sure that one of them doesn't hurt. And of course, if there's any question, they should go to a dentist. And then for people who wear dentures, make sure the dentures are well-fitting because sometimes people don't want to say they're sort of embarrassed or they're afraid they can't afford to go to the dentist, they don't want to go to the dentist, and they just their, their dentures don't work, so they just stop eating. So in someone like that, if they could go to the dentist, of course, that's better. Uh, but if not, you can use a blender to give all kinds of healthy food in a way that doesn't require teeth. And then this is less common, but it does happen. Sometimes people who have really severe anxiety can get a feeling that they can't swallow and it can be so distressing and uncomfortable that sometimes they just stop eating because it's uncomfortable to swallow. So just run that one through your head too. Could it be depression? Could it be anxiety? Could it be reflux? Could it be something funky going on in the mouth or could the dentures be bad? Probably the most common one and the one I think is most important to talk about is what about people who are coming towards the end of their life? In our culture and many cultures, we associate food with love. So if I'm worried about you and I love you and I want you to be stronger and you know get better, despite the fact that you might have an advanced cancer or other serious illness, I may really want you to eat. And it may feel really important to me that I get you to eat. And families can get into all kinds of distress around food as people come towards the end of their life. And it's not good for anybody because it doesn't feel good to the patient. It doesn't feel good to the family members. Nobody wants to spend that time of life arguing. And so sometimes it's important to explain to people what actually happens to the body as you come closer to the end of life. So as you come closer to the end of life, it becomes harder for the body to process food. And the way that it expresses that is by decreasing appetite. And then as intake goes down and we go into ketosis, people lose their appetite even more. So they don't feel hungry. So it's not as though the person is feeling like they're starving. They're simply truly not hungry. And they're not hungry because their body is no longer able to process food in the way that it was before. So if we force someone in that circumstance to eat, you know, har harass them into eating and they do it, they'll feel worse. They'll have GI distress. They might have diarrhea. They may have reflux, which can make it hard to sleep. They may have aspiration and cough. So it's, it's absolutely not a good idea to try to pressure somebody to eat as they're coming towards the end of their life. Now, it's certainly good to offer. And sometimes tiny plates can help here too, because if somebody has a not great appetite and you give them a huge plate of food, they may just be like, oh my God, forget about it. I can't even deal with that. I don't want any of it. If you give them a tiny plate of things that they really like, they might be willing to have a little bit and they can always go back for more if they want to. But it's even okay to just do pleasure feeds, meaning like just a little bit in the mouth, a little bit of 
pudding or one bite of a cheese sandwich or something, just a little bit here and there as they want is perfectly fine. So the most important thing I think is just to not create family conflict around it because that's a time of life when you really don't want there to be conflict. You want to spend really important, deep, special, focused, mindful time together and having fights about food takes away from the ability to be together and connect. So the other thing people are sometimes interested to talk about is appetite stimulants. People will often ask about Marinol. In my experience, it doesn't really work. It makes people feel sort of funky, but doesn't really improve their appetite. I don't really know, to be honest with you, what the literature shows, because after using it in the beginning of my career, a bunch of times when it never made anybody better, I just stopped using it. Remeron, sometimes if you're treating depression and it's someone who has appetite issues, you can give Remeron and it can do both of those things, help with depression, asleep and appetite. But probably the most effective thing is cannabis. So for for anybody in the palliative population, they will almost certainly qualify for medical cannabis card if in your state or country that is allowed. And so if they're able to have that and they're interested, that can sometimes be helpful for appetite. But perhaps most importantly, really, is just not to create conflict around food. So tiny plates, ask people what works in terms of texture and taste and temperature and give them that, allow pleasure feeds and try not to have family conflict around food. So your homework for this week is twofold. One is I recommend that you make a smoothie. And the reason I want you to make a smoothie, whether for yourself, if you like them or for someone else is so that you know how to do it so that you can teach somebody else how to do it. I personally have found this is one of the things that people really appreciate when you teach them how to do it. When we just throw around things like, yeah, go make a smoothie. We assume people know how to do that, but they often don't. So make one for yourself. Try different things so that you have ideas to give to patients. You can make sweet ones, but you can also make savory ones, ones with with ginger. Um, There's all kinds of ways that you can make a smoothie. So try it out and then teach your patients when it's appropriate. And then also think about three ways that you can improve your counseling around food for your patient population. Because of course, the issues are different depending on what kinds of patients you see. But think about three ways that you can improve your food counseling. Okay, thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. And I would be so grateful if you would consider letting one of your colleagues know about this podcast so we can spread the word. It's how I get the word out. And I really appreciate you being here. See you next Thursday. Thank you for listening to the Integrative Palliative Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Integrative Palliative Medicine. If you found value in this podcast, please share with a friend or a colleague, subscribe or leave us a review. And to learn about upcoming integrative palliative educational programs or get on the waiting list for our next Physician Scholars program, go to www.tiipm.org and sign up and I'll see you next week.